I love the Chronicles of Narnia. Don't know if you're familiar with the Chronicles of Narnia, uh, but they were written by C.S. Lewis in the 40s and 50s, and they're children's stories. And what I love about them is that they contain allegory of Christ's redemptive love for his church, of the redemptive story of the cross and the self-sacrifice of Jesus, and much, much more in a very clear and apparent way in a series of children's books. In fact, I've read them to all of my children multiple times. Uh, if you haven't read the Chronicles of Narnia, I really encourage you to do that. Um, but this morning, I, I want to kind of start with a story, give you a little bit of a, a background from one of the Chronicles of Narnia. And I'll tell you right away, uh, it comes from The Horse and His Boy. And there's going to be a spoiler here. However, this was written in 1954. And so my conscience is clear if you haven't read it yet, okay? But the Chronicles provide these vivid pictures. And in the Chronicles, in the, the Horse and His Boy in particular, it follows the life of a, a boy named Shasta. And Shasta is raised uh, by the shoreline in a fishing community. And he's raised by a cruel father named Arshish. And Arshish is uh, a harsh disciplinarian. He's very stern and actually treats Shasta much more like a slave than a true son. And as, as becomes very apparent early in the book, Shasta one night is outside doing something for his father. And he hears his father talking to another man inside the house. And he actually shares with this other man that Shasta is, in fact, not his son. But that many years ago that a boat drifted into shore when he was up late at night out on the beach and in the boat was an infant, a baby. And that he took the baby and raised him as his own, but much more as a servant than a slave. And so Shasta finds in, his, in himself this reaction of like relief and gratitude to know that he isn't the son of Arshish because he never loved him. He never had affection for him. He never felt connected to him. And so it's actually this liberating feeling that comes over him. And he decides in that moment that he's going to leave. He's going to escape because he's not the son of the fisherman. And through a series of events, he meets a talking horse from Narnia. If you don't know, Narnia Chronicles contain talking animals. And, and he and this horse named Bree decide to hightail it out of there. They escape and, and head north. Now, over the course of the book, we learn that, that Shasta kind of falls into this quest to actually save both the country of Narnia to the north and its neighboring country, Arkenland. And he does, in fact, here's the spoiler. Well, we've already included a couple spoilers, but he does, in fact, save both of those countries from, from the, the doom of invasion from a foreign army. But along his journey to save both Narnia and Arkenland, Shasta meets a boy in about the middle of the book who looks very much like himself. And they have a little bit of an exchange, and then he disappears from the story until near the end of the book, Shasta comes into the country of Arkenland and he comes to the king to tell him that he's about to be invaded. And in that moment, the king and his entire court look at Shasta and out steps the other boy that he had met earlier in the story. And the king says, is there any doubt? For not only does Shasta and this other boy look alike, but in fact, they're identical twins. And this other boy is the prince, the son of the king. And in a single moment, Shasta literally goes from being a slave child to a son of the king, to a prince, to an heir to the throne. And the king of Arkenland, King Loon, wraps his arms around him and welcomes him into the family. It's a powerful story. 
And in many ways it illustrates, in fact, I think C.S. Lewis had this passage of scripture or at least the ideas contained in the teaching in Galatians 3 in mind as he wrote the story of Shasta, the slave boy turned son of the king. That is, that as we look at Galatians 3 this morning, that we're gonna see that in the law of Moses, the 10 commandments in the law of Moses is pictured this idea that the law is a slave master. It's a slave master. It's, it's something to which we feel beholden, but we don't feel an affection for, and we struggle to stay committed to the law, specifically talking about the Old Testament and the law of Moses. But that the promises that God made to Abraham are that we are sons and daughters of the king. And how do these two things relate to each other? Well, our illustration taken from the Chronicles of Narnia will help us with that. But that's what we're looking at this morning as we look at Galatians chapter three. So we're gonna begin this morning uh, in Galatians three. We're gonna begin in verse 15. And this morning's message will kind of shake hands with Zach's message last week from the, the early verses in Galatians three and Jason Wallace's message next week on the early verses of chapter four. And so before we read the word of God together, let me pray for us. Our God and Father, this morning we come, we come to you, God. We come to hear from you, to learn from you. Holy Spirit, as we read the word of God this morning, as we read the Bible together this morning, would you open our hearts to receive what you have for us to hear? Lord, we know that in, there's in a supernatural, mysterious way that you can speak to each heart listening this morning, those in the room, those online, that you have a message for us. And so, Lord, would you help us to set aside all the distractions of the week, the things that are coming up, and just to focus and to hear what you want us to hear by the power of your Holy Spirit and in the name of Jesus, amen. Galatians chapter three, picking it up in verse 15, and Paul says, brothers and sisters, I am using a human illustration. Probably better said there, allow me to use a human illustration. No one sets aside or makes additions to a validated human will. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say and to seeds as though referring to many, but referring to one and to your seed who is Christ. My point is this, the law which came 430 years later does not invalidate a covenant previously established by God and thus cancel the promise. For if the inheritance is based on the law, it is no longer based on the promise. But God has graciously given it to Abraham through the promise. Now, there's a lot that's going on here that can be confusing, right? He's talking about the law that comes later and the promise. And then he's talking about Christ in there, about Abraham. And so it's fair to ask, like, what, what is Paul, what's the point that he's making? Well, the first and primary point is that the promise God made to Abraham was a permanent promise, and the law of Moses, the Ten Commandments and the law of Moses that came later does not invalidate that promise. And he starts with this, we'll begin where he did, with the illustration of a will, like an end-of-life will. Some of you probably have written wills or received inheritances from wills. And Paul says that just as a will is binding, so God's promise to Abraham is binding. But he makes this interesting observation Paul applies the word seed, or in some of your versions of the Bible, it will use the word offspring directly to Christ. Listen to what he says. He says, verse uh, 16, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed, who is Christ. In other words, God, actually the promise that he makes to Abraham to redeem God's people and all people 
through Abraham is the promise is actually made to Christ. It's a Trinitarian promise. It's a promise within the Godhead. In, in, in reality, humans have nothing to do with the promise being fulfilled. God has promised to himself and within himself that he will, through this, this uh, nation of Israel, through Abraham, he will redeem the whole world. It's where Zach began last week in Genesis 3, that God promised through the seed of the woman that deliverance would come. Now that promise is getting, coming a little bit more in focus, not just the seed of the woman, but the seed of the line of Abraham. And ultimately, Paul tells us in the New Testament, Christ himself. Now the word seed or offspring here in the original language has this collective singular. And so here Paul's using it in the, in the singular. We'll see him use it in, in the collective later. And so the question that's fair is, well, what is, what is the difference between the law and the promise made to Abraham? We want to look at what the promise to Abraham was specifically, but suffice it to say, the promise made to Abraham, we can see just in the verbs that where God says, I will, I will, I will, I will. He makes all these promises of what he will do. And what is the essence of the law of Moses? Thou shalt and thou shalt not, using the King James language there. And so the promise is very different than the law. And so what was it that God had promised to Abraham? You can read in Genesis 12, 15, 17, 18, 22, and 26, right in a progression through Genesis, as his relationship with Abraham develops, this promise that begins with one thing and then expands into this multi-layered promise. And what God promises is essentially this. First, he promises progeny. He promises that Abraham will have descendants, Beginning with a son, he will have descendants. Next, he promises a place that Abraham's uh, descendants will have a place to call their own. In fact, at one point he says to Abraham, everywhere that your foot treads will be yours. It will be your possession. And then thirdly, he promises the prosperity of all people through Abraham. Now, prosperity is probably not the right choice of word in our time, but I needed a P and blessing didn't work. So, but it really the blessing or the favor of God extending through all people. So those three things. Well, we, we're not going to look at all, cite all of the scriptures beginning in Genesis 12, encourage you to do that on your own. But Moses, the writer of Genesis, actually summarizes that for us in Genesis 26. Here we see all three promises. Number one, I will make your offspring as numerous as the stars in the sky. There's the promise of progeny, or you might say posterity. He goes on, he says, I will give your offspring all of these lands. There's the promise of a place. And finally, all nations of the earth will be blessed by your offspring. There's the promise of the prosperity of all people. And so Abraham experiences, you can read this journey through the Old Testament. Eventually, uh, Abraham's people experience the fulfillment of all of those promises. Literally and in history, God's people through the line of Abraham experience Abraham's descendants becoming numerous to the hyperbole of the sands of the seashore or the stars of the sky. They receive the inheritance of the land and all the world is blessed through them. But beyond the physical and the historical, what Paul says is that these promises that happen again in temporally and in history actually extend into the spiritual realm. And that the promise that God ultimately is promising is Christ and that he will redeem all people through faith as we're gonna see a little bit later in the text. In other words, what Paul is saying is that in the mind of God, it's always been about Jesus. The promise has always been that the seed of the woman, the seed of Abraham would come and redeem his 
people and that the law does nothing to deviate or take away that promise or to, or to circumvent it. Perhaps an illustration would help here. Um, imagine that you received a certified letter in the mail that said that you were gonna receive a substantial inheritance from a distant relative, maybe who was aging and, and nearing death. And you get that letter, and of course, that's, that's great news. It contains the bittersweet idea of losing a relative, but that you're gonna receive this inheritance and the will has been drawn up and it's in your name. But imagine that another relative around your age gets wind of this estate moving on, so to speak, and they move in with this older aging relative and they begin to take care of the property and they begin to uh, endear themselves to this relative, uh, serving them night and day with the hopes of receiving that inheritance. But the will has never changed. And despite how hard they work, yet eventually when this older relative dies, the will is honored and you receive the inheritance. And that person is, is infuriated because they, they moved, they relocated onto the property. They served them. They worked hard to endear them. And by the way, if you, if you see the picture here of following the law, you probably, like me, would find yourself cheering for the person that's working hard to serve to earn the law, to earn the inheritance. That's what Paul is saying the law is here. Paul says that just as a human will cannot be altered, so too the, the promises of God cannot be altered. This is one of the how much more than arguments of the Bible. If a human will is binding, how much more when God makes a promise? And it's always been about Jesus. We cannot earn it. It doesn't matter how hard we serve and work. That is not the point of the law. And let's remember why Paul writes this letter. Paul writes this letter to confront the teaching of the Judaizers. You may remember the Judaizers uh, that Andy talked about two weeks ago and Zach talked about last week. These are the Jesus plus guys, right? These are Jews that came into the community and said, it's, it's faith in Jesus plus you need to be circumcised. It's faith in Jesus plus you need to follow the Old Testament Mosaic law. And Paul says, no, the promise is still binding and it doesn't come through following the law. One way we could characterize the objection of the Judaizers, one scholar said, it's as if they're saying, Paul, your theology is fusing together Abraham and Jesus in such a way that it, it squeezes out Moses as the law and it makes it, it makes it irrelevant. And Paul says, au contraire. One of the things that Paul does that's just genius in all of his teaching, particularly in Romans and Galatians, is he anticipates the objection that will come next. And so he actually puts in the text, why then was the law given? Anticipating, this is what the Judaizers would say to, well, okay, Paul, let's, assume, let's go with your argument that, the, that uh, the inheritance, that salvation comes through the promise. Well, then why was the law given? That's Paul's next answer. We pick it up in verse 19. He says, the law was added for the sake of, the, of transgressions or of sins. Some of your versions will say iniquities. Until the seed, capital S, they were talking about Jesus again, to whom the promise was made would come. The law was put into effect through angels by means of a mediator. There he's speaking about Moses, who was the mediator of the first covenant. Now, a mediator is not just for one person alone, but God is one. In other words, Paul is saying, God is the same God of Abraham and the promise as he is of Moses and the law. We're not talking about two different gods. Is the law therefore contrary to God's promises? Absolutely not. 
For if the law had been granted with the ability to give life, then righteousness would certainly be on the basis of the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin's power. Let me read that again. The scripture imprisoned everything under sin's power so that the promise might be given on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ to those who believe. There's a purpose behind the law that Paul's unpacking here. Before faith came, we were confined under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith was revealed. The law then was our guardian until Christ so that we could be justified by faith. But since that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. There's a lot going on in this, in this section of the text. Paul has first said that there's a permanent promise. And maybe you find yourself this morning like, I kind of relate to the idea of earning God's, like this meritocracy, right? Earning God's favor, earning his blessing, earning salvation. And maybe it's news to you that that's not how God operates. That salvation is based on inheritance. In this next section, Paul expands that and, and he answers that question. Why then was the law given? He talks about the leading of the law. So what is it that the law led us to, to do? Well, first, the law revealed sin. The law made, Paul says, the law was given for the sake of transgressions or sins. And then he just kind of moves on. But in Romans, he expands on this much more clearly. In Romans 3, he says this, for no one will be justified in his sight by works of the law because the knowledge of sin comes through the law. Okay, Paul, I kind of see where you're going. Chapter four, he builds on that. Because the law produces wrath. In other words, the wrath of God. And where there is no law, there is no sin. Wait a minute, Paul, what are you saying? Well, let him expand further. Romans chapter seven. What should we say then? Is the law itself sin? Absolutely not. But I would not have known what sin were if it were not for the law. For example, I would not have known what, to covet the, what it is to covet if the law had said, do not covet. Now, wait a minute. What exactly is Paul saying? Paul is saying that the law of Moses, the Old Testament law, reveals sin like a mirror, reveals our blemishes. This is the same thing we saw in the book of Deuteronomy. If you were with us in the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy, what made the blessings and cursings of, of the book of Deuteronomy a beautiful thing and a gift of God's grace was that here was a God, contrary to all the pagan gods around Israel, who actually said what was expected of us, who actually said what his standard was, who actually said who he was and what his nature was like. And this was completely unique and different. And the Old Testament is not different from the new in that sense that the law tells us I can look at my life and measure it against the law and see that I am a sinner. Now, one of the places we lose sight of this is because we don't measure ourselves often, as, and I'm speaking mostly to Christians here, against the word of God. We start to measure ourselves against that other brother or sister, right? And when I do that, I, I don't look so sinful if I measure myself against the right people. And do you know that the... the, the the largest demographic of people leaving the church or just not attending for apathy are empty nesters. Mid, mid to late 50s to mid to late 60s. And there's a bunch of reasons that they attest to that. Things like, you know, just weary of like the church stuff, right? We did Sunday school, we did youth group, et cetera, et cetera. But there's another huge reason that's consistent. We're tired of the hypocrisy. 
And part of the issue is they're measuring themselves against other brothers and sisters. Rather than coming in as mutual sinners together and measuring ourselves against the word of God because the law of God reveals that, reveals that there's sin. But Paul says that it also reveals that we need a savior. He says this, the law was given so that the promise might be given on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ. The law, as it convicts me of my sin, then moves me to a place where I say, like Paul, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? The 16th century reformer, Martin Luther, had a profound journey of a crisis of faith. And when he read Galatians, this is what he said. He said, the principal point of the law is to make men not better, but worse. And it shows unto them their sin by the knowledge thereof that they may be humbled, terrified, bruised and broken, and by this means be driven to see grace and come to see that blessed seed, Jesus Christ. Why then was the law given? To reveal sin and to reveal that I need a savior and ultimately that I would see Jesus is that savior. But Paul says there's a third reason. The third reason is to bring us to a point of maturity, to a point where I'm able to be humble enough to repent and receive Christ as my savior. So he uses two negative images. One, he says that the scripture actually imprisoned us, that the law imprisoned us in our sin. It was like that harsh uh, uh, upbringing of Shasta under our sheesh. Uh, uh, someone, there was, there was no affection for Arshis. He was harsh to him and he kind of boxed in his life. The law serves this same purpose. In fact, the next image that Paul uses is that he says the law was a guardian to lead us to Christ. The word guardian there is the word pedagogue. And the word pedagogue is not, some of you are in your King James, if you're a King James person, you've been around the Bible for a long time, you'll remember that it's translated a schoolmaster to lead us to Christ. But the idea is much more than a teacher. In the first century understanding of a pedagogue was a servant or a slave in a household who had charge over the heirs to the estate, particularly the young boys who were not yet mature enough or at a place to receive that estate. And so the job of the pedagogue was to be involved primarily from a disciplinary view, point of view to guide that young man until he was mature enough and ready to receive the, the estate that by his blood was, was rightfully his. And so the pedagogue in a Roman household could often be a harsh disciplinarian, not a buddy, but a, a disciplinarian and a guide. Paul says that the law is our guardian to lead us to Christ in that manner. In his great commentary in the book of Galatians, theologian John Stott says this. He says, the purpose of the law was, as it were, to lift the lid off of man's respectability and to disclose what he is really like underneath. Sinful, rebellious, guilty, under the judgment of God, helpless to save himself. so too for us. And I want to make this a little personal this morning. I'd encourage you, I'm going to read, um, Stock continues on. And he talks about how the law confronts my maturity, readies me to receive what Jesus has done, 
We don't just stay in the place of our sin revealed and this hopelessness of needing a savior. No, the gospel and, and, and the law in the Old Testament moves us to a place where we can receive the gospel, the good news of Jesus. And so listen to what Stott says and, and apply this to yourself personally. Think on this personally. Maybe you wanna shut your eyes. Stott says this, not until the law has bruised and smitten me will I admit my need of the gospel to bind up my wounds. Not until the law has arrested and imprisoned me will I pine for Christ to set me free. Not until the law has condemned and killed me will I call upon Christ for justification and life to be made right with God. Not until the law has driven me to despair of myself will I ever believe in Jesus. Not until the law has humbled me, even to hell, will I turn to the gospel to raise me to heaven. And that is where Paul's going. It's again, not that we wallow in that place, but that the law brings us to a place where we're ready to receive the good news of the gospel. And that's exactly where Paul goes next. I wanna back up to verse 25 in case you missed it. Paul says this. He says, but since that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. We're set free. We're like Shasta taking off for the lands of the north and the freedom and the inheritance that we don't even know belongs to us perhaps at the beginning of our journey. And Paul wants us to understand that we're sons and daughters of the king. We're no longer slaves under the law. In fact, look at the very next verse. Through faith, you are all sons of God, the king of the universe in Christ Jesus. For those of you, verse 27, who were baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. Next week, we're gonna witness nearly 30 baptisms right out there. And in each one of those baptisms, that's what they're saying. I'm no longer clothed in my sin-stained garment. I'm clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And I want everybody to know as I go into the waters of baptism and come out, what has transpired inside of me. And so Paul says, you're not only clothed with Christ, but you're co-heirs together, the body of Christ, the church. And the big C church finds its fulfillment or its expression in the little C church of the local church, the Groton Bible Chapel. And listen to what Paul says, verse 28. He says, there is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, since you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, Here's the collective now. Because of Christ the singular, we are the collective bride of Christ, seed according to the promise. In his uh, commentary, John Stott says that there is a three-dimensional attachment that happens when we become believers in Jesus. We are attached to God above. We're attached to one another, other believers in Jesus throughout the world. And we're attached to, through all of human history to those who have believed before us. What Hebrews chapter 11 calls the great cloud of witnesses. We're a part of the legacy promised to Abraham, spiritually speaking. And Paul says in Romans 4, the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would inherit the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. We're attached to God above. We're no longer prisoners. We're no longer awaiting the judgment or the wrath of God. We're no longer minors or, or immature and unable to receive the inheritance. No, we are, we are mature sons and daughters of the king with the full rights of the inheritance of everything that the Bible talks about in places like Ephesians 1 and other places. But we're also attached to one another in the world. And particularly in the local church, we 
need each other. Paul makes this abundantly clear in 1 Corinthians 12. And, and that's what gets me so exercised about seeing our mid to late 50s up to mid to late 60s stop attending church, stop being intimately involved, is that we need them. And just like they need the other generations, so on and so forth. Now, let's not hear what Paul is not saying. When Paul talks about there's no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, he's not abolishing categories of human distinction. In fact, we've said over the last couple of years, when it talks to Jew or Gentile, that, that the body of Christ is the most unique expression of the most beautiful mosaic of our ethnicity and culture in the world. That God brings together every tribe, tongue, and nation, the, the book of Revelation tells us. And so we don't lose those distinctions. We see the beauty of them brought together. Similarly, Paul does not abolish hierarchical distinctions. He spends time in Romans chapter 13 telling us that we are still beholden to governments. In Ephesians, he tells children they're beholden to the parental authority. Uh, we're beholden to uh, supervisors and bosses. And there's a hierarchical relationship to be honored by Christians there. And oh, how we need the scripture's teaching of the beauty and the dignity that he has created us uniquely male and uniquely female, not just for the purpose of marriage, but even just distinctly within a culture, within a society. And I want to pause here and make a pastoral point. It's important in this time that we teach with gentleness and grace and truth the beauty and the majesty of God's plan of our maleness and femaleness. At the same time, if you this morning struggle with, let me put it this way, uh, being comfortable in your own skin, the church is a hospital, not a museum. And I can't speak for every church, but this church is a place where you can come and enter into community and wrestle with that struggle as we open the scriptures together and see what God says about the dignity of how he has made you. And so if that's you, either online or in the room this morning, please know that that's our heart for you. That Paul doesn't disintegrate maleness and femaleness. So what does he say about these three categories? Paul is saying there is no caste system when it comes to who gets salvation. There is no preferred ethnicity anymore. There is no preferred hierarchy anymore. In fact, in our community, officers don't have greater access to salvation than enlisted people. It's always fun to watch those two groups try to figure out how to sit in this room. But the distinctions are there, but the access to the gospel and salvation is not. Same, same too, there's not a preferred gender to, to access it. How does salvation come about? Through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. That's the larger point that Paul's making. We are attached to one another in the world and it's a beautiful thing. Finally, again, we're attached to those who've come before. As a church, we've often said, we stand on the shoulders of those who've come before us. And as Paul is echoing that this morning. We're sons and daughters of the king. I want to return as we conclude this morning to the story of Shasta. Shasta, I told you, he ultimately becomes the hero. He saves the day. But before this happen, he go, happens, he goes through this place of, of kind of uh, self-pity and utter despair in about the middle or latter third of the book. 
And he's alone in the mountains at one particular point at night in the fog. And he's despairing over all of his life circumstances and, and, and kind of bemoaning everything that he's been through, including how he grew up and the harshness of how he was raised. And in that moment, in his hour of greatest need, Aslan the lion, the Christ figure in the Narnia Chronicles appears and he walks with a worn out and discouraged Shasta. And at one point he gently encourages him saying out loud, tell me your sorrows. Lewis writes this, Shasta was a little reassured, so he told how he had never known his real father and mother. And he had been brought up sternly by the fishermen. And then he told of all his other trials and woes that brought him to this moment. And he said, I am the most unfortunate. And Aslan the lion gently said to him, I do not call you unfortunate. He said, why? And he says, because in every moment, when you were alone, when you were in a place of despair, when you were mistreated, when you felt rejected, when you didn't know what the plan or the purpose was, I was with you. Sometimes at a distance, sometimes nearby, I was with you going all the way back to your birth and being discovered on the shore by the fishermen. In fact, he says this, I was the lion. You do not remember who pushed the boat in which you lay, a child near death so that it came to shore where a man sat wakeful at midnight to receive you. Aslan reveals to Shasta, the slave boy turned prince, that he purposely pushed him to, uh, to the, uh, as a baby to the harsh man who would raise him until such time as he was ready and his life circumstances were ready, not only for his deliverance, but for the full revelation and discovery of his true lineage. This is precisely what God has done in providing the law as a parenthesis in his redemptive plan for us. Do you see the picture? That until Christ would come and redeem us fully as sons and daughters of the king, the law of Moses was given. Like the harsh father figure of our sheesh, it leads us to where we discover that we, are, that we are sinners, that we need a savior. And it brings us to a place where we are ready to receive the salvation that Jesus offers, and we see our true heritage in Christ Jesus. It's a beautiful picture of the redemptive plan of God and that we are sons and daughters of the King, that God is sovereign and that he could be trusted. I wonder this morning, as Christians, do you, like me, at times struggle with more identifying with that third relative who's trying to earn the inheritance, not realizing that in a flip of the, of the illustration, it's mine by promise if I will just receive Jesus by faith. You know, one of the things that the law does, we're talking about the law of Moses at a particular time in history, but the reality is the law of Moses, the 10 commandments, what the Bible says is required of us actually still has real power in the individual life journey of each one of us. It still needs to convict me that I'm a sinner, that I need a savior, even today, before I can receive Christ as my savior and become a son and daughter of the king. So I wondered this morning, what's holding you back? If you've never trusted Jesus as savior, receive the harsh treatment of the law that you might receive the inheritance as a son or daughter. There's one other really kind of neat thing that happens in this text. Paul uses the word pedagogue, and we talked about what a pedagogue is. You know, the study of pedagogy is the study of a, the methods of teaching. 
And there's another layer to this where we see what has God's method of teaching or bringing his people along been throughout this text. It's always relational. God's method of teaching is to call Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees and to make a promise to him, make a covenant with him. God's method of teaching, his pedagogy, is to elevate Moses to the place of mediator and have a relationship with him that the scripture says is, was like face to face. But God's ultimate method of teaching, the writer of Hebrews says, is through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews 1 says, in the past, God spoke to us by the prophets and in various times and in many ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. Did you catch that? That the creation of the universe was through the agency of the son of God. He goes on and he says that he is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining, speaking of Jesus here, sustaining all things by his powerful word. The writer of Hebrews wants us to understand Christ is the majestic sovereign power of the agency of creation and the one who sustains the entire universe. He wants us to see the majesty of Jesus, but then he says this, after he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the Father in heaven. In other words, he juxtaposes that the God of the universe, Christ himself, in all of his majesty, needs to be seen measured against the suffering and the agony and the cruelty and the scandal of the cross through which he entered time and space to provide what? Purification for my sins that I might receive the inheritance. This is what Jesus has done. This is what we remember in communion this morning. I want to encourage you to take your cup and bread combo thingy out and to consider this morning what Jesus has done for you. If you're not a believer in Jesus this morning, this is a symbolic feast for those who, who belong to Christ. We would invite you to consider who Jesus is this morning, that he has given his life for you. We're gonna take the bread together. Jesus, uh, at the last supper before he was betrayed, he took bread and he, he broke that bread and he said, this is my body. Jesus' body was ripped and torn and whipped and beaten for you. And then he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood poured out for you. Christ's body was shredded and torn that his blood might be poured out to provide forgiveness for sins. So I'm gonna give you just 20 seconds to recognize that you don't have to earn that inheritance, that it's a free gift and to remember and discern and focus on what Jesus did for your salvation. And then we'll give thanks for the bread and give thanks for the cup. Go ahead and take a few seconds. give thanks for the bread. Lord God, we thank you for your perfect plan that even though you sent the law for a season of time to help us understand who we are and who you are and what it meant to walk with you, that the promise was never abated, was never abandoned, that Jesus, you were always coming. And Jesus, you're coming again. And so we take this bread as you've asked us to do in remembrance of you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and take the bread.
and thanks for the cup. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your blood. That the perfect blood of Jesus, the only human being never to sin, was shed that we who are guilty could be forgiven. That Jesus, that you died in our place, making satisfaction for our sin through your own death and the shedding of your own blood. And so as you've asked us to do in Matthew's gospel, in particular, Jesus, we do this in remembrance of you until you come again. We praise you in Jesus' name, amen. Let's take the cup.